Good morning, Keystone. Merry Christmas. Uh, I have to tell you, I love Christmas. Uh, and so I love getting to celebrate and worship with you. Uh, and I'm excited to be able to preach on Christmas. This day where we celebrate what we believe is the greatest life-altering, world-transforming event there's been. God becoming a human, entering into this world to rescue us and to restore all the brokenness. And so it's a, it's a joy to be able to get to preach and celebrate and worship today with all of you. Uh, I want to say, just as Brandon did, especially if you're a, a kid under the age of 12, uh, welcome. We're glad that you're joining in with us this morning and worshiping in here with everyone else. I, I have a question to start out, whether you're uh, a kid or older. And the question simply is, what's one of your favorite Christmas traditions? I have, I have a lot of them. Like I said, I really like Christmas. And so I enjoy uh, the music. I enjoy the decorations. I enjoy the cookies. Uh, I enjoy the movies, the same movies year after year, uh, even the occasional Hallmark movie. Uh, I, I enjoy it all leading up to Christmas. And if you're a kid and you got one of those bags, I included one thing that I enjoy about Christmas, a small thing, uh, a Skittles candy cane. That year after year, I love that they come out with all these different flavors of candy canes, and so I included one in your little bag that you can enjoy during the service if you want to. For me, and probably for most of you, Christmas feels like this explosion of joy. I especially love the kind of build-up, waiting expectation to Christmas. And I, I by no means want to kind of scoot over the fact that Christmas can be difficult for a lot of people too, and we're going to hit on that this morning. But there's absolutely this part of building up, waiting, expectation, longing for December 25th. And I can remember one year when that was heightened for me. I was in fifth grade, and I wanted a PlayStation 1 for Christmas. That's uh, like a one of the first video game consoles, or one of the earlier ones. Maybe I shouldn't say one of the first ones. And up till this point, my parents had said, no, they're not going to get me one. But I had a feeling that this Christmas, that was going to change. And so when the gifts got put under the tree, uh, I went down, looked, and I saw one that I was pretty convinced was about the height and width of what a PlayStation 1 box was. And then I did something you're never supposed to do. Kids, don't follow my example. I peeked. So I found uh, kind of the biggest place between the tape, pulled back the paper just enough to where it didn't rip, so there was no evidence, uh, but I could see in just a little bit, and I thought I saw that distinct PlayStation logo. And then I waited and waited and waited for what felt like years, but probably was only about 10 days. And Christmas morning came, and I woke up at 4 a.m. probably and waited some more. And then my parents rolled out of bed around 7 and, and we did our traditions and, and we eventually opened up our gifts. And sure enough, there it was, a PlayStation 1 complete with Tony Hawk Pro Skater 3. The wait was over. The wait was over, right? See, I, I would guess most of you have a similar story or memory like that from Christmas. 
that Christmas over and over and over again has this aspect of waiting, longing for December 25th. And that's why we celebrate Advent, because we're remembering the waiting, the expectation leading up to Christ's coming. And we find especially this idea of waiting and expecting in the story of Simeon and Anna when they meet Jesus for the first time. It's found in Luke uh, 2, 22 through 38, if you want to open up there this morning. These are two people who've been asking that question that the Advent book has asked over and over again. God, will you come back to stay? And like Brandon said, we know the answer to that question in Christ. The answer is yes. But we still find ourselves waiting on God. That's part of what we said earlier in this series. That most of our life is spent waiting in some way here on earth. And we're ultimately waiting for the day when God will come back again. And make all the dark things light and all the wrong things right. Like the book says. And as we wait, Simeon and Anna's story can show us how Christmas gives meaning, I would say, to all of our waiting in this life. So let's pray, and then we're actually going to pick up in Luke chapter 2, verse 21. Father, we worship you this morning because you have shown over and over and over again that you are worthy of all worship, all glory, all praise. And you showed that especially in Christmas, coming as a baby, taking on human flesh, living for us, dying for us, being raised for us so that we would not have to wait without hope but can wait with our eyes fixed on the one who we know is our king, Christ. God, as we look at in what many ways for a lot of us is probably the familiar storyline this morning, help us to see you and to worship you again. Open our eyes. Speak for your glory and for our joy, I ask. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 2, 21, we'll read up through verse 38. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given him by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for the purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when his parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, Simeon took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, 
a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. We can see, first of all, from this story that the wait is over. The wait is over. We know God's plans for the world. And we can see how great and shocking these plans are by looking at the setting, the significance, the scope, and the surprise of Christmas. All things that I think we can get in verses 22 through 33. Starting with the setting of Christmas. We see the fact that God is in the details. God is in the details. This story tells us, it, it, starting in verse 22, skipping over verse 21 for a second, that it happens about 40 days after Jesus' birth. And Mary and Joseph are bringing Jesus up to the temple of Jerusalem to fulfill some Old Testament uh, requirements, rituals that have been prescribed in the first half of the Bible. In verses 22 through 24, we can see that. And so we should ask, well, why does Luke include those details? He's not just setting the stage for the story because he could have just said, well, the parents came up to Jerusalem and brought Jesus along. Instead, I think he's telling us every Old Testament theme, storyline, requirement, ritual, command was pointing to this one and now he's here that the setting of all of history has been leading up to this one child. And look, he's here. That God has been setting the table of history to lead up to Christ's coming. I think back to when I was a child. And one of the chores that I would be required to do sometimes was set the table. And I never quite got it as a kid. Like, why are we setting the table? Why, why can't it just be kind of every man for himself at dinner? We have to get out the plates, put them on. Get out the cups, fill them with water. Get the silverware, make sure it's on the right side of the plate. Get the napkin, put it out. But in setting the table, what, what we're doing in some sense is saying what's about to happen is important, even if it's just gathering for a meal. And the more important and significant the event, the longer it takes to prepare and set up for it. That's why at Christmas on the 25th, it will probably take you longer to prepare and set the table because it's a bigger deal. That's why if you've got married or you have kids that got married, it takes months to prepare for that day to in some ways set the table for it. And yet none of that compares with the fact that for thousands of years, God was setting the table of history for Christ to come. Every single detail mattered. So this purification ritual that Mary goes through was meant to point to the fact that we are sinful, born sinful, 
and we need someone to save us from that sin. Who is this very baby? As Hebrews 1.3 says, he came to purify us from our sins. This dedication ritual pointed back to the fact that God saved the Israelites from slavery in Egypt through the death of firstborn sons and pointed forward to the fact that God would one day give us his son, firstborn son, to die and to save us. Like John 3.16 so famously says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. All of history, every single detail has led up to this point, this child, this moment, and now he's here. Now, let me just stop for a second and apply that to when we find ourselves waiting in this life with details and stories and things happening that we wonder, why is this going on? To recognize that God is in the details. There is no detail of your life, no matter how big or small, that God has somehow overlooked or has put there unnecessarily. And just as we can look back at the Old Testament and see all of that fit together in Christ, one day we'll look back and be able to see how all of our waiting, all of our stories fit together when Christ comes back again. God is in the details, and that's really good news for us even today. Next week, we could look at the significance of Christmas, that God has come to save and to comfort. In Christ, God is both fully revealing his plan, but also fully revealing his heart for people like you and me. And his heart is to save people from their sin and comfort them in their suffering. Look again at the words of Simeon in verse 29 through 30. He sings, Now I can depart in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. The great significance of Christmas is that God has come to save people from their sin. Don't miss this. If you or if I don't believe we're sinful, Christmas isn't necessary. It might be fun, but we could ultimately come up with something else fun, lots of new rituals that could replace it and we wouldn't end up missing it in the long run. But if, if you believe I, I'm sinful, Christmas is as necessary as the oxygen you believe or breathe. Without it, we're hopeless. Without it, we don't know if we have peace with God. Simeon and Anna are not, do not have such overwhelming joy in this story because Skittles candy canes got put on the store shelves and they had a PlayStation 1 under the Christmas tree. They have overwhelming joy because they've seen God's salvation. He's acting on our behalf. He's coming. He's going to do something about our sin. We have hope. We can breathe again. The other significance of Christmas we see in this is not only has God come to save people from their sin, but to comfort them in their suffering. It tells us Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And that word consolation is this idea of comfort. That in Christ, God has come to comfort his people in the midst of all their pain and suffering 
in this life. God's very heart is to save people from their sin and comfort them in their suffering. And he does this. He shows that this is his plan in a person, in a baby, in Christ. That's why Simeon says, I have seen your salvation. It's here. It's right in front of me. It's this child. And this offer of salvation, comfort in Christ, is universal across the board. That's the scope of Christmas. That God's offer is universal. This gift of Christ is not a age-specific, gender-specific, interest-specific gift. It's good news of great joy for all people. That's why Simeon can sing, he's a light for revelation to the Gentiles and he's glory for the Jews. He's for everyone. He's for men like Simeon, women like Anna. He's for the young, a teenager like Mary and the old, an 84-year-old like Anna. The offer of Christmas is universal for everyone. If, if you were here this morning, whether you're a Christian or not, and you, you feel the weight of how sinful you can be, you feel like you just can't get your act together, you, you feel like you just keep screwing up, let me tell you, Christ is for you. His grace shines all the brighter in the face of our sin. If you're here and life is difficult, and you're weighed down by pain and suffering, and things are not going how you want them to or expect them to. Christ is for you because his comfort is all the sweeter in life's greatest difficulties. If you're here and you're anxious and fearful about the future, what's around the corner? Christ is for you because his peace sinks all the deeper in the most turbulent of seas. Do you know the only people who Christ isn't ultimately for in the end? Those who think they do have their act all together. Those who are self-sufficient, who say, I don't need someone to save me. I don't need someone to comfort me. Jesus, I've got this under control. Thanks, but no thanks. Those are the ones who end up being opposed to Christ. The offer is universal. And yet we find those who receive Christ are the humble and the self-sufficient ultimately end up putting a hand up and saying, I don't need him. And so this morning, the, the idea is God's plan to save you and comfort you is clear. It's Christ. It's Christ. It's, all, it's abundantly clear. He's not hiding anything or keeping anything back. And so if you're not a Christian the call is turn and trust him. He is enough. He is enough. Christ comes for the humble, not for the self-sufficient. And we can see this also in the surprise of Christmas. I, I love getting to hold uh, little babies at Christmas because there's something about that situation, something about holding that child that makes the surprise and shock of Christmas hit me again. Just think about it. All history has been building up to this point. God's about to lay his greatest card. God's about to reveal how he's going to win the greatest battle. 
God's going to write the greatest part of his greatest story. And he sends a baby. A weak, fragile, small, crying baby. And not only that, but a baby who is born into a poor family, who can't even afford a sheep to sacrifice, but have to buy two birds. And not only that, but a baby born into a poor family from the backwoods town of Nazareth, who people are one day going to say, what good comes from Nazareth? What is God thinking? What is he doing? This would be a little bit like if you were watching your favorite football team and they were about to carry out the biggest play in the history of their franchise. It's fourth and seven, Super Bowl's on the line, and they've got to score a touchdown. And out trots the kicker and the punter to play quarterback and wide receiver. What is coach thinking? Has he lost his mind? That's the kicker and the punter. We can't score on this play with them out there. But if that plan succeeded, that coach would be talked about for years and years and years and years. See, God sends his son as a weak, helpless baby into a poor, backwoods family with no power, no wealth, no influence, so that then when he saves the world in this way, he gets glory for years and years and years because he's done what none of us would have ever dreamed up to do. Let's again just stop and think about this for a second as we think about our waiting in this life. Doesn't Christmas show us, in fact, prove to us that God's plans are far different and yet far, far better than ours. And in our waiting, as we think about things that are happening in our lives, things that we wish, why is this happening? This this doesn't seem necessary. Why is God doing this? What's he thinking? What's he up to? Might not Christmas provide us over and over again the reminder that though we do not know what he's doing, his plans are both different and better than ours. And he is writing a story we never would have written, we never would have dreamed up, but it ends up being good and he looks glorious in the end. See, we see that the wait is over, but we can't stop there because in essence, we also know the the waiting has really just begun. The wait has just begun, that God's plans involve waiting and suffering in this life. We, we can look at this in the, verse, in the words of verses 34 through 35. Here's what they say. I should preface this by saying, up till this moment, everything about this coming child has been good and exciting and wonderful, which makes these next words, in some sense, sound all the more astounding. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Wait a second. What happened to the salvation, the consolation, the peace, the fall of many? Opposition? Mary, a sword's going to pierce your soul? 
these verses can almost feel like the day after Christmas, like December 26. There's been all this buildup and excitement leading up to Christmas. And then it comes and it goes. And you wake up on the 26th, and all of a sudden, like, the shine of the gifts is kind of already wearing off. Christmas music all of a sudden sounds horrible. Uh, you're feeling, like, bloated from all the food you ate, and you're staring down this long, dark, cold January and February. And you're like, well, what, what's changed? That was fun while it lasted, but what's changed? We, we can have that feeling. Like, well, what's really changed? That's a nice story, but what's changed? Wives still lose their husbands and live as widows, just as Anna did for 60 years. Parents still lose their children, just as Mary did one day with Jesus on the cross. Tornadoes still rip through towns and leave destruction. COVID still wages havoc long after we got sick of hearing about it. Dreams still go unfulfilled. Longings still go unmet. We can have this feeling of like, what's changed? We're still waiting. We're still waiting. Two of the big things that have changed in the midst of Christmas is, is that we know, first of all, that God has suffered for us. It changes our view of God when we go through suffering and waited. Waiting. Christmas tells us that God has suffered for us. What ended at Easter started at Christmas. Jesus didn't just suffer on the cross. He suffered the whole way through. Look, look back with me at verse 21. We skipped over this one. Let me read it again. At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. It's really easy to read over that and miss this fact. God was circumcised. This baby is fully man and fully God, and he's circumcised. He doesn't even get any sugar water to help with his pain, right? Why why does that matter? Because Christ's life in the start and in the finish ends with the shedding of blood. And everywhere in between, he walks the normal life of human suffering and brokenness. Christmas tells us God didn't stand at a distance. He entered in to suffer day after day after day for us to save us and to comfort us in our suffering. And not only that, but Christmas tells us that Christ is sufficient. Christ is enough in all our waiting and suffering. He's sufficient to comfort us and carry us through our suffering. Anna and Simeon aren't rejoicing because all their problems suddenly went away. Simeon's still going to die. Anna's still a widow till the death that she dies. They're singing and rejoicing because they say, this one, he is God's salvation and he's enough no matter what may happen in this life. He will provide us the comfort we need. He will be with us. He will sustain us. He is enough. In, a, in an Advent book uh, that he wrote, Pastor Matt Chandler talked about going through a Christmas where he had significant health issues and, and he wasn't sure what the future held even into the next year. Didn't know if he'd be alive the next Christmas. And, and he wrote these words. He said, here's what I can tell you. Jesus was enough. He was with me. He comforted me. 
He gave me joy. He gave me peace. He gave me hope. It's as we wait that we find out just how sufficient Christ is, just how true that is to us. And as we wait, we ultimately know the wait won't last forever. We know the end of the story. The wait won't last forever. We know how God's plan ends. We know the story's ending. We, we, like Simeon in verse 26, have been let in on a secret by the Holy Spirit. What's that secret? That Christ is coming back one day, ruling as a king, and he's going to eradicate all the world of sin and suffering, like Revelation 21, 4 through 3 tells us. Or like the Advent book says, God really is coming back again to stay and to make all the dark things light and all the wrong things right. And the reality is if we know what the ending is, we can live differently in the present. If we know what the ending is, we can live differently in the present. I I told you in the beginning, I I like the occasional Hallmark movie. And I'm guessing there are a lot of you here this morning that like Hallmark movies too around Christmas, or at least you're forced to watch them. And here's the reality. You don't watch a Hallmark movie on the edge of your seat. Right? You don't watch wondering how or what's the ending going to be? Will they really get together this time? Is this the one where the prince dies in battle? Will, Will everything work out? You watch knowing it will work out. You're just waiting to see how it will work out. And so it changes how you watch that movie. In Christ, we know it will all work out in the end. So we're not waiting, wondering, will it work out? But we're waiting, watching, wondering, how will he work it all out? We know it will work out. We don't have to be on the edge of our seats, but we're still waiting, watching, expectantly, wondering, how's it all going to work out in the end? Not only do we know the story's ending, we know the king the story is all about. Simeon and Anna know something about this baby that causes them to worship and sing and proclaim his name to everyone who's around. They know he's the Messiah. And they know that although he's a baby now, he's not going to stay a baby. He's going to grow into a man and he's going to rule as a king. It's interesting to me that most of the songs that we sing around Christmas are kind of soft and sweet. If you caught on to that before, you probably have. But have you also caught on that, that most of them are declaring Christ's dominion and sovereignty as king? Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Born thy people to deliver. Born a child and yet a king born to reign in us forever. The king of kings salvation brings. Let loving hearts enthrone him. This, this is Christ the king. I found out something interesting recently. I found out a fact about songbirds, that part of why they sing is to declare their kingship in some way their sovereignty over a certain patch of land. 
I, I was reading a book by a guy named Jordan Peterson, and he was talking about the wren. And, and the wren is this small little bird who sings these sweet, beautiful songs. And, and yet here's the words that Peterson uses to describe those songs. The songs they sing, so peaceful and beautiful to human ears, are siren calls and cries of domination. A brilliant, brilliantly musical bird is a small warrior proclaiming his sovereignty. I had to think, isn't that a good image for what we do at Christmas? We recall the birth of this baby boy. We sing these sweet songs that we're so familiar with over and over again. But if you peel back the layers a little bit, you find that we are singing and proclaiming and declaring that we know the one who rules sovereign over all history, including each of our stories. See, we know the one who all of history is all about. It's always been about him and it always will be. And so we also ultimately know the one who our lives and every moment of waiting in our lives is also all about. That's the big idea left with this morning. We know and sing about the one who all history is all about. And so our lives and every moment of waiting are also all about him and making him look glorious in the end. And so we might conclude by just simply asking, what are you waiting for? What are you, what are you waiting for this morning? If you aren't trusting and following Christ, you're not a Christian. What, sometimes what, what are you waiting for? God's plan is abundantly clear to save you, to comfort you, and to give you life forever. It's Christ, period. He's shown us. Turn to him. Trust him. And if you are a Christian and you find yourself waiting in this life, which may be many, we, we get to peek. We get to pull the paper back, peek back at Christmas and see God coming as a man, coming as a baby to suffer and die for us and then be raised for us to save us and give us hope. And we get to peek forward and look ahead and see God returning as a king one day. And so we trust him with our lives and our stories. We sing about him, praise him, and we tell anyone who will listen about him, just as Simeon and Anna did. And although our words may be soft and our songs may be sweet, they echo the truth that this baby who came 2,000 years ago is returning as a king to make all the dark things light and all the wrong things right, and he will reign forevermore. And that is why we celebrate and worship at Christmas so much. Let's pray. Father, we pray in the words of the song we already sung. Come, long expected Jesus, come again. You were born to set your people free from our sins and fears. Release us. God, let us find our rest in you today and every day. By your own spirit, 
roll in our hearts alone. And Jesus, by your sufficient merit, raise us to your glorious throne. Amen.